Uh, a long, long time ago, I was trying to teach every once in a while the Psalms. I think that might have been a couple of years ago. Uh, not that I expect anyone to necessarily remember, but uh, we left off at Psalm 13. And so a couple of years later, I thought it would be appropriate to pick up on Psalm 14 and 15. Um, I, I love the Psalms. Um, I think the Psalms really serve as the heart of the Bible in a lot of what, in many ways, as Jesus is the heart of the Bible in just as many ways. Uh, the Psalms are quoted more in the New Testament than in any other book of the Old Testament. Uh, they're quoted more than Isaiah by far. I think it's critical uh, to just see the value of the Psalms and, and to understand what's, what's in the Psalms and um, see the value of what's in the Psalms. I think a way that helps me approach the Psalms uh, as I've studied them, the Psalms oftentimes have very challenging language. Um, Psalm 14 has very challenging language. Um, in the scripture reading, it may have even taken you off guard. You know, what, what are we reading? What is this? I hope to point out some things this morning with these two Psalms to really try to convey the point that what the psalmists did uh, is they would communicate new covenant truths using Old Testament language. What this does is it helps New Testament realities, things that are invisible and intangible to us, become much more real, more talent, tangible, more simple to grasp. Um, and so we, we see in the Psalms so often uh, concepts we're familiar with, like eternal life and heaven, but those concepts are communicated in a much more realistic way rather than an intangible way. We'll see that in Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tents, may dwell on your holy hill. Uh, the psalmist, I believe, is thinking of something that is more eternal than temporal. Uh, David, as the writer, could not abide within the tent of God, tabernacle. Uh, but I think David understood very well, uh, by faith, that the tabernacle was simply illustrating something much greater that was accessible to anyone of faith. Uh, but we'll, we'll see those things as we continue through the, the study. What I really want to start with, though, is these psalms are uh, a parallel to each other. Uh, Jason, a couple Wednesdays ago, did an invitation on Psalm 1, and he mentioned that in poetry in the Bible, you will oftentimes have uh, parallel statements in poetry, uh, comparisons in poetry. Psalm 14 and 15 are like that. You run into that not just in statements and themes within the psalms, but you'll also find that in individual psalms, that there will be psalms that complement each other. You'll see words in one psalm that connect very immediately to the very next psalm. You'll see contrasts being made between two psalms. What we see in Psalm 14 is a meditation on the person who does not see God and what they're like and what their nature is. In Psalm 15, we see a meditation on, well, what about the person who seeks the Lord? What are they like? What's going on there? And so there's a very deliberate contrast being made between these two psalms. And I hope to go through both of these psalms and, and show that, that contrast this morning. Um, so we're going to be looking at Psalm 14 first, and we'll just briefly try to touch on the, the things that are mentioned here in the psalms as we go through them. One, one more thing by reason of introduction. Um, when you think about the psalms, you may usually think that these are our prayers, and usually they are. But very often they are not as much direct prayers talking directly to God as they are very often meditations on God's kingdom and truths of God's kingdom. Psalm 14 
never has a statement directly addressing God. There is no you, there is no your that you would usually find in prayer. So Psalm 14 is not a prayer as we would usually think about it. It's more of a, a meditation. Psalm 15 has one statement that is directly given to God, and the rest of it is a meditation. Verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? And 2 through 5, the rest of the psalm, he doesn't seem to be necessarily talking directly to God, as his heart is more in tune with God in the meditation itself. So keep that in mind, that the psalmists are meditating on truths of God's kingdom. And these meditations help to build and cultivate convictions and build godly decisions to help navigate life in faith. Because the Psalms show us that faith is not just about whether or not you're willing to do something correct, but whether or not you truly understand and love God. Like we sung, uh, I stand in awe. Psalm 14. Uh, we'll, we'll read the psalm again before... Uh, the Saul of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, and the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. So we're going to start with the first three verses here. Really beginning with the statement, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You may have noticed this in your personal reading of God's word and in studies and sermons in the past. The way that God approaches the issue of belief is less about intellectual capability and more about the condition of a person's heart. And so the psalmist is not approaching this as the wicked person just intellectually just can't seem to connect the dots when they look at creation and they need a nice evidence in study to try to really put things together. And for some people, you know, those, those studies do help a lot and are very practical. But what God is most concerned with is where belief is affected by the condition of a person's heart. In the Psalms, what you find is, a, is whether or not a person is truly willing to submit to the rule and kingship of God, whether or not they're willing to submit, or whether they decide they don't want accountability to the rule of God. And David serves as a great illustration of this because David was in what role in Israel's nation? He was a king in that nation. And so David would have had a great familiarity of whether or not people really did want to submit to the rule of God, especially him being a king who was a man after God's own heart. And notice it says the fool has said in his heart. So he's not just saying something they say from their lips. Think about it like 1 John chapter 2. Remember when John says, if someone says, I have come to know him, but they do not keep his commandments, they are a liar. The truth is not in them. So the psalmist is not so much concerned about what people are confessing with their mouth, but what they're confessing in their behavior, their submission, and their willingness to truly serve God. 
And just like the beginning of the lesson, what you find in the Psalms is they let reality be shaped as it's defined by God's truth and righteousness. And so the psalmist isn't just generally thinking about good and doing good as just people kind of being kind to each other. And maybe people do some nice things sometimes and really they're not so bad. The psalmist looks at people as, as those who are image bearers of God and whether or not people are truly representing that image in the way that they're deciding to live. Now, these things sound very critical, right? They're corrupt. They committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. Nobody understands. Everybody's turned aside. They've become corrupt altogether. There's no one who does good, not even one. That's emphasized twice there. I think to really convey the seriousness of that point. But I want, I want to convey something very important here uh, about both the psalmist and God himself. The psalmist is not saying these things out of bitter withdrawal. And so a lot of times when you read the psalms, there will be very severe things that are said about the wicked. And oftentimes as you read those things, you can think, well, the psalmist just seems like a very embittered person who really hates people and wants people to be punished. But I want you to understand this. The psalmists, all of the psalmists, they never say a thing about others that they are not first admitting and willing to say of themselves. Look at Psalm 32. Um, Psalm 32 is actually quoted in Romans 4. But we're going to look at Romans 3 in just a moment where Psalm 14 is, is quoted. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, and I'm going to read the first five verses. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silence about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sins and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the guilt of my sin. And I'll read verse 6 as well. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach it. So what the psalmist is considering, not just David, but the other authors of the psalms as well. These are people who accept that God's judgment is true, that the hard reality of the world is everybody has turned away from God. As we'll see in Romans chapter 3, all are guilty before God. Everybody has turned away. So notice in verse 3, this isn't about people uh, being born into a sinful condition. That's, that's not what's conveyed in the Bible or in Psalm 14. But it's that everybody is influencing each other and leading each other away from God. And we all turn and decide for ourselves at some point to turn away from God and not serve him. And this is simply a hard reality that encourages a deeper dependence on God as a source of truth, righteousness, and goodness. It leads them back to Psalm 1. If you remember Psalm 1, as Jason led a couple of Wednesdays ago, it starts as the cornerstone of the entire book. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor, nor stand in the place of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. 
And so it leads the psalmist to trust God alone as the source of perfect truth. You see this in Psalm 12. Look at Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. And look earlier in that same psalm, verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. And so the psalmist is considering that the people of the world have turned away from God and have been trapped in deception. But if you look at Psalm 14, verse 5, there is a righteous generation. But those are not people who are trying to be self-righteous or ignorant of their sin. These are people who have been humbled by the authority of God and have chosen to repent and seek his forgiveness and serve him. So again, this is not set out of self-righteousness or withdrawn bitterness, but it's simply a hard reality that the psalmist is willing to accept, to see God's truth more clearly. See this in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. You'll turn there uh, very quickly. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So again, Psalm 14 has challenging language, but they're, they're conveying New Testament truth using Old Testament language. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, Paul has been writing about the same subject, that the people who were not from a Jewish background, they were clearly people who gave up and forsook God and were led into sin. But then he makes the point in chapter 2, well, the Jews, the Jews are even more guilty because they've also fallen short of the glory of God. So in chapter 3, verse 9, he reaches this climax and says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, here's Psalm 14, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. And so Paul quotes Romans, uh, Psalm 14, rather. And he makes the point that that psalm is communicating the very truth that I'm teaching you now. And just like in Psalm 14, the psalmists weren't saying things of others that they had not fully accepted about themselves. In the same way, in Romans 3, Paul the Apostle says, are we saying these things because we consider ourselves better than all of these sinners? He says, not at all. We are all in the same condition. We have the same need for mercy, and we serve God from the same motivation. And just like in Romans 3, the transition leads into the fact that this exalts the love of God. It magnifies the righteous character of God. We see that also in Psalm 102. So Romans goes on to talk about how Jesus died for us while we were yet enemies, that God's love was demonstrated toward us, not while we were friends of God or already serving God, but that we were hostile to God. And it's in that moment that that could be made most clear when Jesus died on the cross. Look at Psalm 102. I want to show you a contrast that's made that I think is very helpful. That God, even more than the psalmist, is not looking at the world with bitter hostility or with a withdrawn attitude that these sinful people are so corrupt, I can just have nothing to do with them. Look at Psalm 102, starting in verse 19. I want to put back into your mind in Psalm 14. It says, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand and seek after God. Look at Psalm 102, verse 19, and see a contrast 
For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death. That men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. You know what the psalmist is ultimately reflecting on? God sees how bad the situation is. He sees how messed up my life has gotten by my own sin. And that is the very reason why God so zealously initiates the relationship. It's what compels God forward to act in compassion to save. And that from God's perspective, one of the themes you see throughout the Bible in verse 20 here in Psalm 102, that it's like God sees us as being imprisoned by the lies of the devil, being held captive by him to do his will. And God looks down from heaven, not with bitter resentment and withdrawal, but with the initiative to solve the problem, to redeem, to pay the price, to initiate the relationship, to bring us out of bondage, and to serve us from there. And so when we understand how bad and corrupt the condition of the world is in contrast to God, we can appreciate so much more the mercy of God as truly being mercy, not merit. We can truly appreciate that everything that God is given is truly given by unfathomable grace, not by merit. And it equips us then to love people, not just those who are nice to us or pleasant, but that we will love those who are even our own enemies and that we will give without even expecting anything in return. The psalmist sees a truth that is leading them into the love of God and into his compassion. Back to Psalm 14, verses 4 through 7, or 4 through 6, rather. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? And so the psalmist here meditates on the fact that God has people who are there, but it's like they're being eaten up like bread. Uh, eating bread is just inconsequential. Um, I think we don't remember every meal we've ever had in our lives. Uh, and so the falling away of the righteous, so the consuming of those who love God, is treated as inconsequential. Um, from what I've observed, um, unfortunately, we've had brethren fall away from the Lord while I've been here. Um, the brethren falling away from God's kingdom here has not shaken the community. You know, there wasn't any fasting going on in the community. There weren't big announcements on the news about it. But those brethren that fell away, that mattered more to God than any major event that's ever been reported on the news in Savannah. But that's for us to appreciate. And so in the next part of the psalm, the psalmist sees, well, people who don't care about God they don't care about accountability to him. They're treating it like it's nothing. It's like they consume the righteous, like they're eating bread. But what the psalmist sees is radically different. The psalmist sees that God is jealously invested. That these people who don't care about God, they're not calling on the Lord. They're not repentant, even though they're directly, oftentimes, the cause of God's people falling into apostasy. He recognizes in verse 5 that it's not that the righteous should be shaken or fear and run from God or think that they're not safe. The reality is that God will avenge his people and that it's the wicked who have the reason to be in dread 
for persecuting and destroying God's remnant. That's the message of the cross. That's the heart of the message that leads to repentance. That because Jesus was treated in such humiliation, God holding us all accountable, there will be a vengeance for what Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus fulfilled this truth. God will avenge his people because God is with the righteous generation, even when it's not evident to others. Verse 6, you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. I think this is a very important phrase to, to think about and understand in the psalm. If you look back at Psalm 4, um, starting in verse 2, as uh, the ESV translated the plans of the poor or the counsel of the afflicted. Uh, in Psalm chapter 4, I think we see that this is counsel that encourages continued trust, submission, quietness, while suffering intensive grief, loss, and injustice for the world. Psalm 4, 2 through 6. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. And look at verse 6. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. And so the psalmist recognizes if he focuses on the world, on the activity of the world, the attitude in the world, he's not going to find anything that encourages godly trust. And what that does in verse 7 is it encourages the psalmist to long for God more desperately. Oh, that salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. The Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. There's something significant in verse 7 that conveys the psalmist's understanding he is deep in enemy territory. He needs salvation because the world around him is trying to bring him to a point of condemnation. He needs restoration because the world is trying to rob and take away everything he has to discourage him from serving God and seeing hope in serving God. He needs God to bring joy. He needs assurance, assurance that God will give joy because the world tries to convey grief and instill grief to lead to hopeless despair. And so the psalmist again acknowledges that's what the world is trying to do. And that's what's happening in the place where I'm dwelling, that I'm behind enemy lines. And what I need to do then is trust that God is going to act. He is going to save. He is going to restore my losses. He will preserve me and keep me and he will bring me restored joy for every grief and every trial of the losses that I face while here. Let's look at Psalm 15 now and see a contrast. Those who seek God. We'll read this psalm again and then make some new points through it. Again, the psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who do believe. Swears to his own burden, does not change, does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So I love this first 
couple questions, these first couple questions. Again, if we see these psalms as a pair and as putting a deliberate contrast, we oftentimes in the psalms, not just in one psalm to the next year, but oftentimes within the same psalm, that while the psalmists suffer great afflictions, and as they could be distracted from God by the despair they're facing in their situations, they are constantly refocusing themselves on their greatest ambition. No matter what happens to these people who wrote these psalms, they are always refocusing themselves on their greatest ambition to be close to God. These are not people who just want forgiveness and a clean conscience and then go on their way. It's not just people who want to live a nice, comfortable, morally upright life and go on their way. These are people who want to be as close as they can possibly be with God. See that in Psalm 27? You turn just a few psalms over. Look at Psalm 27, verse 4. Um, the first three verses uh, convey the point of the psalmists deliberately focusing himself on the Lord in trouble. And in verse 4, he says, One thing I've asked from the Lord. That I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle in the secret place of his tent. He will hide me and will lift me up on a rock. And so in Psalm 15, I think it's very helpful to see the meditation in Psalm 15, not as he's been separated from the troubles that are communicated in Psalm 14, but really what is his security? What is his greatest focus in times of adversity? It's closeness with God. So not just closeness with God, though, but there's something very specific here. that he, he's at, It's as if he's asking God, looking for an answer. He wants to be with God where God shows he is. Now, in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, could people just waltz up to the tabernacle and go inside of it to just go into the most holy place? Now, there were terms, there were conditions, there were certain people who could do that. And so God gets to define how people approach him because he is holy and God must be approached in a holy way. But I think it may be helpful to see it maybe with an illustration, if you'll bear with me. Imagine you're going over to someone's house, and it's someone that you're supposed to be very good friends with. And maybe even it's a great honor to go in their house and be with them. It's raining outside, it's storming, everything is very muddy, and to get into their house, you've got to trudge through some mud, and your shoes are horribly dirty. And so when you drive up, somebody tells you, hey, you know, we need to make sure we take off our shoes before we step on their carpet so that we don't get their house dirty. Can you imagine saying, well, let's go home then? Yeah, because if that's what I got to do to get in here, well, fooey to all this stuff. You throw you know, just a ridiculous tantrum about something that is actually very reasonable. In Psalm 15, the psalmist is not reflecting on anything unreasonable. These are all very loving, humble attributes that help a person see the character of God more clearly. It's about reasonably treating your neighbor with love and honor and respect with respecting God's will, respecting his instructions, respecting his rule. It's about doing things that show honor without receiving it in return. So again, there's, there's nothing unreasonable said here, but it, it, they are things that require refinements of heart, refinements of character, the purging of selfishness and the purging of sin, 
Just like we need to take off dirty shoes before messing someone's house, if we're going to go with God where he is and remain there, then when God gives terms of holiness and purity, it's not an unreasonable thing. So this is the ambition of applying all of these qualities. Romans also talks about the gospel cultivates the obedience of faith. And I think this is a psalm that conveys the principles of the obedience of faith. Again, this is not a person who just wants to do something morally upright and just because it's good, they'll do it for that reason alone. But they want to do good because it will bring them closer to God. And I know that might sound like a subtle difference, but it's the difference between Jesus and the way he lived his life and the heart that drove him to live his life and the Pharisees who were trying to keep things that the law instructed, but by their own ambitions, without any genuine humble ambition to truly want to please God, to really be with him where he is. And so that seeming subtlety is the difference between the heart of Jesus and the emptiness of the service of the Pharisees. And I want you to notice similar applications in 2 Peter in just a moment. But I want to work through this very briefly before we look at that connection. In verse 2, the psalmist reflects not on just quoting laws, which he could have done, but on realizing things from his own understanding and meditations, putting it together very concisely. This is somebody who walks with integrity. They are striving for moral uprightness. They're trying to do what is right. They work righteousness. They're trying to walk with humility and please God and work and work for his glory and act in a way that glorifies him. They speak truth in their heart. They're willing to accept their sin. They're not just serving God externally, but they're internally honest and needing to receive truth, needing to humble oneself and have a tender heart. Verse 3, it's not somebody who gossips, who is trying to defame others or slander their reputation. It's somebody who is careful to speak well of others. In verse 4, people who are successful in the world, who are bold and abrasive and brash, people who may seem to be leading impressive lives, they're not admiring those things. And it's empty of the love of God. But those who fear the Lord, even if they're poor, unimpressive, quiet, they haven't established some big name for themselves or accomplished anything great in any worldly way. They look with honor at those who fear the Lord. They swear their own hurt. They keep their word as best they can, even when it hurts, when things arise that make it more difficult to be faithful to a commitment. They are committed. They are honest. They're working hard to keep the things that they commit themselves to. Verse 5, very generous with what belongs to them. They're not demanding any interest on anything that they're lending to others. They're not taking any bribe against the innocent. And he who does those things will never be shaken. Because these are things that help us see the faithfulness of God as we're imitating. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 11. And with 2 Peter 1, I think a mistake that can be made with some of the psalms that say those things is you can say, well, okay, is the psalmist saying you're justified by works and what you do? I thought, you know, we're justified by faith, not, not our works. 
But I suggest to you that what the psalmist is meditating on and the principles in Psalm 15 are again communicating the very same things fulfilled in places like 2 Peter chapter 1. And so we'll read this, uh, this series of verses and make some connections. 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, mm -hmm. in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, <laughs> perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Remember the end of Psalm 15, he will never be shaken. Verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but I've written 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11 by Psalm 15, just as a reminder that Psalm 15 is a one-to-one -one connection with things that Peter goes back to and says in nearly the same ways. If you look at verse 5, remember Psalm 15 started, he who walks in integrity, where does it start in verse 5? In your faith supply moral excellence. Some translations will even say integrity. And before that even, when the psalm starts with wanting to dwell with God and be with him where he is, these are all things we're supplying into our faith, our love for God, a desire to be with him and to please him in every way that we can and be as close as possible. I want to extend the invitation by means of this promise. He who does these things will never be shaken. In the world, we seek security, safety, stability. We look for that with our jobs, our income, relationships, pleasure. But ultimately what God is offering us, he's offering us eternal stability, eternal safety, eternal security. But just like the song we sing, trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than trust and obey. It's exactly what the psalmist recognized about God. But our obedience is not just some heavy burden God is placing on us as a cruel taskmaster. But God, through our obedience, is liberating us from things that stain, separate, destroy, deceive. 
And God is trying to purify for himself a special treasure, a purified possession, eager to do good and to please him. And so in verse 10, uh, this is a promise that has helped me immensely in my faith. If we are diligent to make certain his calling and choosing us, if we're diligent to apply these qualities from the foundation of faith, as we practice these things, we will never stumble. God will be faithful to keep what we've committed to him. He will be faithful to provide opportunities for repentance and forgiveness, just as David reflects on in Psalm 32. If we work with God and open our hearts to him, we are genuinely willing to submit ourselves to his rule. He will overwhelm us with an appreciation for the glory of what we've neglected and neglected and sin, and what he overwhelmingly gives us in his kingdom with eternal hope and comfort. You're here this morning, and you have not repented of the life that you've been living apart from God. The invitation is constantly extended, but especially at times when we assemble, we're trying to read God's word and think about things that God is teaching us. We especially want to extend the invitation to anyone who may have been pierced in heart. So if there's anything we can do for you, we reserve this time as we sing our invitation song to bring any needs for it to the same thing.